Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Now it's time to talk about the deep history of the radical right's stealth plan for America. For that, we turn to Nancy McLean. She's an award-winning historian and the William H. Chafe Professor of History and Public Policy at Duke University. She's the author of an important new book. It's titled Democracy in Chains. We reached her today at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Nancy McLean, welcome to the program. Hi, John. It's great to be with you. In the 1970s, liberals controlled the House by big margins. They controlled the Senate by massive margins. They had a majority of the Supreme Court. Now, the Republicans not only control all three branches of the federal government, but two-thirds of the state governments. Uh, And these are the Republicans, special kind of Republican, the new kind of Republican, who believe that government is the problem and that uh, tax cuts are the answers. How did this change come about? Of course, we blame, we give credit, we give the blame to the Koch brothers for funding and organizing the funding of the this new kind of Republican candidate, a campaign that's had, you know, frightening success at achieving their long-term goals. I always thought that the Koch brothers' strategy came from, I wasn't sure where, maybe the Heritage Foundation, maybe they thought it up themselves. You in Democracy in Chains point out that Charles Koch had been supporting right-wing candidates since the 60s and had been a political failure for decades. He didn't really have a good idea about how to win, that money, even hundreds of millions of dollars, wasn't doing it. So he spent decades looking for ideas that would help him break through. He supported hundreds of scholars and intellectuals hoping they would help. And you have discovered the intellectual basis for the Koch brothers' political success. Tell us what you found. Well, yes, I found this uh, trail, and I have to say, I I think I only was able to find it circuitously by going from the mid-1950s up. I I don't think almost anybody could have found it from the present going back because we would not have known what to look for. Um, Most people on the left and, you know, liberals and moderate Americans have never heard of a man named James McGill Buchanan, who supplied the ideas that made Koch's money effective, and I only uh, happened on him. I didn't know about him when I started uh, a research project that became this book, and I got intrigued by what he was doing in the 1950s in Virginia and followed that story, and it led me ultimately to Coke. But yes, absolutely, as you said in your introduction, what's really stunning is that libertarianism uh, for many years, uh, for half a century, was a very marginal uh, proposition. You know, it's on the fringes of American politics even today, you know, less than Four percent of American voters identify as libertarian, so it's an absolutely minority current in our politics. But what we've seen in recent years is that Charles Koch 
has been very patient. And, you know, he's someone who um, is one of the richest men in the world. Um, he runs a huge privately held corporation. And he's an extremely strategic person who plays the long game and has infinite patience. And he, as you said, he funded hundreds and hundreds of scholars by his own admission looking for what he called the technology that would let him break through, that would enable these inherently minority ideas to actually achieve a, a transformation. And I should say, Koch is really a messianic. He's not only, I think, a brilliant and strategic figure, but he's also a messianic figure. He's compared himself to Martin Luther of the Protestant Reformation. And he said when he gave a huge uh, contribution to James uh, Buchanan's center at George Mason University in 1997, at the start of all this, he said that he wanted, and I quote, to unleash the kind of force that propelled Columbus to his discovery. So this is someone who really has, again, a messianic sense of his own world historic mission. And it is ironically and tragically precisely because we have allowed inequality to develop in our society to the point that someone like him literally has hundreds of millions of dollars of spare change, you know, to to put around and to invest in a kind of venture capital way to see uh, what will work, that now we are faced with a project to shackle our democracy by stealth means. And a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, will draw a breath and say, oh my gosh, that's an exaggeration. How can she say such a thing? Uh, And I have to say that I myself was often shocked when I was doing my research and just literally like physically sickened when I started to understand these ideas and I started to understand the scale of this apparatus that Koch had built up to put these ideas into effect essentially behind the backs of the American people. So it's really a chilling story. So James McGill Buchanan, I have to say Mm -hmm. I had never heard of this guy, even though it turns out he did win the Nobel Prize for Economics. He's the source of the ideas, the strategies that Charles Koch put into practice. Who is, who was James McGill Buchanan? What was his work about? He was born in Tennessee in 1919, was the only, in fact, Southerner uh, to win the Nobel Prize at the time that he won it. He worked in Southern institutions most of his life, and he came through the University of Chicago, where he worked with Frank Knight and Milton Friedman and other people who were part of what the Mount Pelerin Society project that some of your listeners may have heard about, but basically this kind of ultra-free market, kind of fundamentalist, some would call it neoliberal, transnational grouping that began in 1947. And so Buchanan was very much part of that milieu. But what he did that was distinctive from others is that he used that economic toolkit to analyze politics. And he developed an approach uh, that is called public choice in its broadest catchment. And there are some liberals who, who you know work in the public choice tradition, I should say. But his specific variant came to be called Virginia political economy. And he said at the outset that, that when he set to work at mid-century, um, you know, it was the time that Keynesian economics were dominant. You know, labor unions were very much accepted. All kinds of collective behavior was widely accepted and understood as legitimate because people believed that you needed countervailing power to the massive corporations that had developed in American society. Well, Buchanan did not see things like that. He was a libertarian individualist. He disdained of collective power. He did not believe that anybody thought about the common good or the collective good. So he actually said that his mission was an 
this was his verb, to tear down the idea of public interest that, that prevailed uh, in the late 1950s. And what he did to do that was to, uh, as economists would say, model political actors as the Chicago School did market actors. So to say that no matter what anybody said, they were actually seeking their own self-interest. So an elected official who told you that they were, say, supporting unions for the common interest and working for a clean environment because that was what the people wanted and that was good for them, Buchanan would say, no, 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 no. That person, that politician is actually doing that because he can get the votes of those constituencies. And by his analysis, politicians were buying votes with other people's money. And he came to view the entire enterprise as illegitimate and to say that we needed a constitutional revolution to stop it. But Charles Koch picked up these ideas and is actually pushing not only for radical changes applying uh, Buchanan's ideas, but uh, in in policies um, to undermine unions, to privatize Social Security and Medicare, to suppress votes, to gerrymander on a massive scale, all of those kinds of things. But ultimately, what those, those, uh, those policy changes are enabling is a radical change in our fundamental national rule book, and that is the Constitution. So this Koch donor network and its allied politicians, who, as you pointed out, now control so many states, what they are pushing for is a constitutional convention uh, in, in which they would be able to push through their what they call liberty amendments. And those liberty amendments would hamstring uh, government and shackle democracy like nothing we have ever seen before in this country. It is really a chilling prospect. And by some counts, they have 28 of the 34 states they need to succeed. Wow. Well, you call you say this is was known as Virginia political economy in the South is a fascinating key to this whole story. Uh, you know, we think of the right wing of the Republican Party. The Goldwater movement comes from Arizona. The Reagan movement comes from Southern California. We've I've always thought it was a sunbelt phenomenon, but you show that the South has been the key historically to the rise of the right, and that this libertarian movement actually is deeply connected to the opposition to the civil rights movement. Let's you, let's use the word racism here, which isn't necessarily part of libertarian ideology, but because of the way the civil rights movement enlisted the federal government in, mm-hmm. in achieving civil rights, we had a blending of Southern white voters and libertarian uh, uh, theory. Uh, and today we have Southern domination of our politics to a surprising extent. You've summarized it beautifully. And yes, that's how I found James uh, um, McGill uh, Buchanan was by accident looking into the story of how Virginia led the South in massive resistance to Brown versus Board of Education and uh, adopted school vouchers to enable um, the selling or the you know shifting of tax revenues to segregated white private schools, private academies. And Buchanan, I found, was playing a role in that, as was Milton Friedman. That's another story. But just as you summarized, what was interesting to me is that they did not speak explicitly in terms of race, and they claimed to disdain racial prejudice and disdain state-sponsored segregation, although they'd done nothing to fight it and did nothing to, to condemn it that I was ever able to find. Um, but, but they said they also opposed what they call it forced integration, which was also a segregationist term, I should say. Yeah. But, but what I believe, I mean, I don't think that they, that these economists were obsessed by race in the way 
that so many white Virginians who were saying we should shut down public education and fund private schools and, you know, God damn it, we're not going to obey the federal court telling us to put black and white children together. But what, what the economists did that I think is almost more chilling is they saw this as an opportunity for their cause. These, these ideas that they had of privatizing all kinds of things, right? And of breaking down the power of collectives. Those ideas were totally marginal in the the late 50s. And so these kind of right-wing libertarian economists saw in the Southern schools crisis an opportunity to move their cause forward. And they saw also, I think, a mass base for that cause. And it was exactly that mass base that Barry Goldwater tapped in 1964 when he ran for president, having opposed the Civil Rights Act, which all libertarians I've ever come across uh, did. Um, and he also opposed the Brown decision. And people may not remember it, but but Barry Goldwater was the first, you could say, neoliberal candidate. He, it, it, you know, the way that term is, is used, he supported privatizing Social Security. He wanted a flat tax instead of graduated progressive income taxes. And he also called for selling off the Tennessee Valley Authority, which had brought huh. rural electrification to so many uh, Southerners um, who were not wealthy. So it, it was really extraordinary. The only states that Goldwater one, besides his home state of Arizona, were the states of the Deep South that yes. practiced extreme voter suppression. Yes. So it's almost like anticipating what we're starting to see now, that this cause, this Koch-led cause, cannot win if the public understands what it's doing and what it's seeking, but they can throw smoke in people's eyes by throwing out anodyne phrases like limited government, you know, keeping more of your tax dollars in your pocket, you know, all of this stuff that sounds nice. But meanwhile, they're pushing for things that nobody wants, like privatizing Social Security and Medicare, like pushing through that god-awful health care bill that most Republicans didn't want. You know, so all of these things uh, they're doing, but they also understand that to do it, they need to suppress the vote. Hence, they have encouraged this, what they know to be a lie from, you know, systematic research. There is no significant voter fraud in America, and yet they're suppressing the votes of up to 6 million Americans by some counts, and these extreme gerrymanders that, just as in the 1950s, overrepresent rural conservative interests and underrepresent urban and suburban interests. And it's very interesting, in fact, the massive resistance legislation that Virginia passed in 1956 would not have passed if they did not have gerrymandering that overrepresented rural conservative uh-huh. districts. So it's almost like we're just going back to that that time. And in fact, I think that is the model of liberty that this Koch donor network really wants is what you saw in Virginia at mid-century minus the segregation. Let's talk about Trump. Trump is not a libertarian. At least he certainly did not run as a libertarian. And that's the reason the Koch brothers did not support Trump for president. Trump was against free trade. He promised a national health care program that he said would be terrific. He said he would protect Social Security and Medicare. In fact, he called the Republicans during the those Republican debates during the primaries, he called the Republicans who the Koch brothers supported puppets. Trump was yeah. not a libertarian right winger. Uh, the mm-hmm. Koch brothers did not support him for president. Where do we stand right now between the how are the Koch brothers getting along with yeah. Trump right now? 
Yeah, I think that's a really uh, important point that you make. And I think it's also important for listeners to, to remember to take themselves back to the primaries. And as you say, Trump was the only one of the Republican uh, front runners who was not carrying the Koch agenda. And again, James McGill Buchanan taught, uh, don't focus on who rules, focus on the rules. Mm. And if you focus on personalities, you'll never get anywhere. If you focus on fundamentally changing the rules to restrain uh, political actors, as he advocated, in my words, to shackle them, because he always called for enchaining the Leviathan in in his term. Um, If you focus on those, you will get somewhere. And so the interesting thing is all those Republican frontrunners had, you know, hook, line, and sinker were accepting the Koch uh, donor network's agenda. Trump seemed not to be, as you say. Um, And I think that made him, I mean, certainly there was a lot of racism, a lot of bigotry of all kinds and, and, you know, whatever that played into Trump's support. But a part of it, I think, is that a lot of Republican voters, almost at a kind of intuitive level, knew that their party was getting hijacked. And they, you know, and I think that's kind of what happened when they say he speaks for himself. He has his own money. He doesn't have to answer to others. Now, that may have led some people who might not otherwise uh, vote for him to have voted for him. But now since he's in office, he has he's surrounded by Koch people. So how that happened, we don't know. But by one researcher's count, 70 percent of Trump's uh, senior appointees are from the Koch donor network. Wow. And virtually all of the people who are in key places come from that donor network. So Mike Pence, the vice president, you know, I would urge the left to say, slow down on impeachment because we get Mike Pence then and he would actually be a lot more competent in pushing through this agenda. And Mike Pence is 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 one person who's there. Mick Mulvaney, his budget director, crucial, important f- position. Mick Mulvaney comes out of this network. Mark Short, who is uh, the White House liaison to Congress to get the agenda through. Well, lo and behold, he comes from five years at the head of Freedom Partners, which is a Coke donor uh, operation. Um, Scott Pruitt in the EPA, uh, now the head of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, Naomi Rao. I mean, you could just go through the list. At every key place, there are people who are associated with this radical right donor network um, who are calling the shots and who are doing radical policy changes. So while we're all focused on Trump's latest tweets, these people are pushing through this agenda. I really believe that this is like the classic con man. You know, he stretches an arm out here, you know, and catches your attention with something. And meanwhile, you know, the other, out of your view, all these other things are happening. We're seeing this in the EPA. We're seeing it in the Labor Department. We're seeing it in the courts. We're seeing in all these places that the Koch donor network agenda is going through. Nancy McLean, her new book on the deep history of the radical right is called Democracy in Chains. It's out now from Viking. Nancy, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. It was good to be with you. One postscript, Nancy McLean's Democracy in Chains, was named the most valuable book of 2017 by John Nichols on his progressive honor roll for The Nation magazine. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.